Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Margaret Atwood is one of the most revered authors writing in the English language today, while best known for The Handmaid's Tale, which has been turned into a long-running series on Hulu, her other novels, including her recent Mad Adam trilogy, have become literary classics. Her most recent novel is The Testaments, a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. I had the privilege of interviewing Margaret Atwood eight times in all, starting in 1989 with the most recent interview to date in 2013. This interview, recorded during her book tour for The Blind Assassin, which would win the Man Booker Prize in 2000 and was named Time Magazine's Book of the Year, was conducted on September 14, 2000, and marks the last Margaret Atwood interview to feature my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff. The Blind Assassin is a book that comes together in the end in a very, very strong way. When you're writing a book like this, do you know exactly where you're going from day one? I never know where I'm going from day one. Because I was giving some lectures in Cambridge about writing, I was buttonholing all of the writers that I was bumping into here and there, and I was saying to them, what's it like for you when you go into a book? And the answers were like this. It's dark in there. It's like a dark room. I go in, I bump around I don't know where the furniture is. It's like a dark cave. I can see the entrance, but I'm inside the cave. It's like a labyrinth. It's like wading through a river. It's like going down a set of stairs, and it's dark. So the general theme is that an awful lot of people don't know where they're going at the beginning. And I I think it was Virginia Woolf who said, uh, writing a novel is like walking through a dark room with a lamp which illuminates things that were always there already. But the ending reveals secrets. It does. With those secrets there. The secrets emerged as I poked around in the darkness. (laughs) A lot of writing is waiting. It really is. And a lot of writing is taking the wrong turning. You know, you take the wrong turning, you come to a blank wall. You turn around, go back. You try another turning, and that leads nowhere, and you come back, and then you go along. And sooner or later, like the rat in the maze, you find the cheese. (laughs) But sometimes you don't. Then you have to throw the whole thing out. Well, Margaret Atwood, when this happens, and you keep running into these blank walls and having to retreat and find a new path, do you find yourself throwing away hundreds and hundreds of pages of of false leads? I have thrown away hundreds and hundreds of pages of false leads. In fact, I have thrown away two false lead novels, which 
I just had to abandon because no matter what I did, I was not going to get to that place. Well, if, if all of this is so difficult and sounds like a rather uh, painful experience, why do you do it? Well, it's not exactly painful. It can be frustrating and annoying and discouraging, but then there are compensations, and it's like anything that you put a lot of work into. Um, or say, you know, your car breaks down, there's something wrong with the motor, it's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. Aha! It's this. So, in effect, you're a detective looking for the story. I think a lot of writing is like that. It was Edgar Allan Poe who said that, that real detective stories had to be written backwards because you had to know the solution before you could lay the chain of clues that would lead up to the solution. But I don't write detective stories, so my process is a lot less... Um, rational than he said his was, although I don't actually believe that his process was that rational. You think he was just inventing an explanation after the I th fact? I think, yes, partly, partly. But the genre was very young then. You know, the Purloined Letter was one of the very first. Uh, but when you think of something like The Fall of the House of Usher, surely that had to be a kind of trance experience that he was having. Indeed. Uh, you seem from what you just said, but also from the contents of your books, very familiar with popular culture, mass culture, uh, genre literature. Uh, on an earlier occasion uh, when we were together, you were talking about H. Ryder Haggard and your fondness for his works. In another of your book, I believe it was Lady Oracle, there's a great deal of attention paid to uh, what we might lose. Bodice call. Ripper Gothics. Bodice Ripper. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And now in in The Blind Assassin, uh, the title of which has several layers of meaning itself, one of them is, is uh, it seems to be the name of a work, an imaginary work of fiction. Uh, and there is still another semi-imaginary work of fiction, although it, it exists in part called Lizard Men of Xenor. Yes, Lizard so, Men of Xenor was not a novel. It was a story in a, in a magazine such as Weird Tales. How did I come by all of this? Well, I'm not familiar with every area of pop culture by any means. Uh, qualification usually has to be written page. No, it has to be in writing, yes, yes. and to a certain extent, B-movies of the 50s, which I used to go to in order to avoid studying. Therefore, I have seen The Creeping Eye, which has probably never been seen by you. Uh, well, in fact, it has. <laughs> it has. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse also, me. the brain that wouldn't die. Uh, the head that wouldn't die. Ah, I see that. You know, well, there's the brain there from planet Arus. Yeah, the, and there's also apparently one called The Brain Without a Face, which is... Um, I haven't seen, but I'll catch up with it. Yeah, you're not later. talking fiend without a face. Um, somebody said brain. This was uh, a verbal referral, but I'll I'll track it down. I, I think there's also one called "They Saved Hitler's Brain." I've never seen that. Keep an eye out for it. <laughs> I have seen "Love Slaves of the Amazons." Oh, you've beat me on that one. Which I highly recommend. The uh, Amazons are dressed in, in potato sacks dyed green, through which you can see their little bras and undies. <laughs> so y you are familiar with, with those. What about with pulp magazines themselves? Okay, pulp magazines of the 30s and 40s and indeed the 50s. I don't think the pulps really 
took a whack until television uh, hit, and they were called the pulps originally because of the kind of paper they were printed on, not because they were necessarily viewed as totally subliterate. And the paper was, you think, newsprint, but it wasn't newsprint. It was rather thick paper that didn't have a sheen on it. It didn't have a coating. And the ones that did have coating on the paper were called the slicks. And those would be more of the family magazines and things like Collier's and whatnot and so forth. And the pulps were cheaper, and they did get more and more lurid towards the end of the 30s and into the 40s. They really got quite lurid. But in the period of which I speak, they were somewhat more decorous and somewhat more artistic. The covers, for instance, are really quite art deco a lot of the time. They were paintings. And you had a wide range of stuff in them. You had many different genres. You had the westerns. You had the adventures. You had the Argosy type, um, you know, men wrestling grizzly bears and <laughs> things. And you had romance magazines. And you had Weird Tales and Amazing, which is more or less the area in which we find ourselves. And those could be a mixture of things from space with with tentacles or just other things from space. Lizard men were big. Um, women who had been dead for 2,000 years but were still quite luscious were quite an item that come up again and again. Talking plants were good. Evil wizards whose souls were embodied in sparkling gems. You know, this we're, we're in the area of Conan the Barbarian. Did you read those pulp magazines when you were growing up, or did you discover them as an adult? Both, to wit. I was born in 1939, so some of these magazines were still lurking around in Granddaddy's attic. Of course, I was not allowed to purchase such, but it was the age of comic books, and a lot of the very same motifs got into the comic books, and then they got into stuff like Star Trek. And before that, they were in things like H.G. Wells' The Collected Works, or Jules, Jules Verne, um, or indeed Ryder Haggard, who was big on the 2,000-year-old woman motif. Books like Shangri-La, I mean, the, the motifs had been around for a while, and the pulps basically raided them. So I'm familiar with them both from having seen them and then from having gone off and, and looked at stuff as a grown-up to see if what I remembered was if the lizard men I remembered were really there, and indeed they were. So you weren't sitting there, little Margaret Atwood, little Peggy Atwood, sitting up in her in her attic, grabbing Grandpa's magazines and furiously reading the works of of um, Robert E. Howard or H. P. Lovecraft. I was, or I wasn't. Were you? I was, sometimes, and sometimes I was just reading the people that they got this stuff from, such as Grimm's Fairy Tales. Edgar Allan Poe, Greek mythology, and the motifs come round and round and change the clothes, and it's a science fiction fantasy adventure, but we're still talking about people who can fly. When you were writing the Xenor story, uh, did a part of you kind of go, I wish I was around then, so this is the stuff I could be writing instead of the serious literary fiction? Well, of course, one of the purposes for which these fantasy, adventure, sci-fi stories were used was to comment on society. And a lot of the people turning this out, particularly during the McCarthy era, it was a mode in which they could uh, write critiques of the society in which they found themselves 
without being so overt that they would get not published. Let me rephrase that, so they would not get published. I knew Judy Merrill, uh, who moved up to Toronto with her whole collection of science fiction and fantasy and donated it to a library there, and it's the Judith Merrill uh, collection of science fiction and fantasy, and you'll find it referred to in the back of the book. And So talking with her and getting a window into that period, a lot of the people who wrote these things were really quite socially conscious, and my guy is too. The alternate world that he constructs has an aristocracy and a, and a slave class and political corruption and other stuff that was of interest to people who thought uh, along those lines. I did grow up on Ray Bradbury. I loved Ray Bradbury. And I also subscribed to a, in high school, you could subscribe to a, a pocket book of the month club, which I did, and that's how I came to read Donovan's Brain, which I'm sure is well known to you. We, we treat a, a lot of this material and we discuss a lot of it as if it's somehow trivial, and yet the same themes can be used in very serious fiction. I'm thinking specifically of, of, of a book called The Handmaid's Tale, which was, as I recall, very well received in the science fiction community. It was indeed. You, you were not but, treated as an interloper. Well, what, what's this woman doing here? She no, belongs. No, 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 no. no I wasn't. All. Not at all. No. And I think people who uh, read a lot of this kind of literature are usually very pleased when somebody acknowledges its worth or its potential worth. I'm not a person who classifies things according to genre and just discards them in that way. I think books are good or not good according to whether they're a good or bad book, and not according to what kind of book they may be. So my reading has always been fairly all-inclusive. There are a few things I can't make my way through very often, but I do check in on them once in a while to see what's going on. What's absolutely unreadable to Margaret Atwood? Well... Not absolutely, but not frequently readable. I, I check in on Harlequin romances about every 10 years to see what's changed. And I can tell you that the women can now have their own businesses. They can have, instead of just being secretaries or uh, governesses, they can now have a, an interior decorating business. Um, I haven't checked in recently, so I, I'm not really up to date, but the men talk more. There can be more foreplay, and that's about all I can tell you about that. <laughs> what that says is that the subtext of all of, even the, the worst, the crappiest of this stuff, the subtext can form almost a, a, a literary landscape that you can look at so that no matter what you're reading, whether it be uh, you know, John W. Campbell edited material, which let's say was the top of the pulps uh, of the science fiction pulps down to the one cent or half cent a word stuff, will all tell you about what it was like in the late 30s. Well, it might tell you that or it might tell you something about story and what kinds of stories persist because we are human beings and because we have a certain range of interests. And you must realize that I went to college at the University of Toronto in the late 50s, early 60s, and the two bright lights were Marshall McLuhan and Northrop Frye. And both of them, although they're thought of as being quite different, 
both of them included a scrutiny of a wide variety of literary forms. And one of the things Fry used to say was, you know, parents tell their kids not to read comic books, but in fact, children should read whatever they find interesting. And his theory was the theory of archetypes, and the archetypes are remarkably stable. What varies is the treatment and the details of the time, things like that, and how well it's done. But the actual story, you know, Titus Andronicus, well, it's Shakespeare, but if you look at the story, it is the most lurid kind of pulp fiction story you could possibly imagine. And similarly with a lot of the the plots that he used, you know, Hamlet, change all the clothes, set it in Dallas, <laughs> what do you have? <laughs> so those kinds of story elements have been around for a very, very long time. And one of the first things that I was very keen on was Grimm's fairy tales. And then I went on to all of the Andrew Lang books. And the man writing about story was Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces. And one of the things he said, which is quite true, is that stories come into literature and then they go out of literature into the general population. And then they're taken from there back into literature again. And it's a kind of endless circulation of story from high literary to what you're calling pulp and back again. Well, let's, let's get back to The Blind Assassin. The Blind Assassin is, can be viewed from many angles. One from which I view it is that it's a multi-generational family saga. Five generations of the Chases, our main protagonist, Iris Chase, starts with her grandfather and continues the family story through her granddaughter, which set me in mind of one particular author, and then I read a review uh, where the reviewer compared it to another. Uh, I was thinking of William Dean Howells. The other reviewer was uh, speaking of Booth Tarkington. How, Gosh. How, do you, how do you feel about people like this? Well, never having read them, I'm sorry to say. Uh, why don't we just throw in the Foresight Saga? Or, say, Proust, you know, with his multitudinous array of acquaintances and things. But if you have a, a character of any kind who exists in time, you're, you're, you're usually going to provide them with a, a family. If you have a character who exists only in the present, say, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe has no mummy, no daddy, no siblings, no grandpa, no grandma. He just is there. We don't know anything about his provenance. So you can have that kind of person, or you can have a person uh, with more background. And once you have a background, then what kind of background? You know, and where did they, if they've got money, where did they get the money? I've decided that when people say soap opera elements, what they mean is bad things happening to rich people. <laughs> Whereas if bad things happen to poor people, it's gritty realism. This book takes place in the milieu, which is uh, a milieu I'm not familiar which, with, which is the 30s in Canada. 30s, small town, rich people own the factory. You go into those small towns and there's always a couple of mansions. And then you wonder, who built those mansions? Why did they build them here? And where did they get the money to do them? What's there a difference, do you think, between 
uh, a similar kind of town in the U.S. and one in Canada, or is there a real distinction at that point? I think very similar in that you're dealing with middle manufacturers. Um, usually they got their starts on rivers because those supplied the power. My grandfather imports the machinery from the States where they were a little bit ahead of things and very go-getting in that area. It's why Niagara Falls has had so much industry around it. They're using the water power. And no tax system at that point. You could keep the money and all of it and no union so you could exploit your workers. <laughs> what can I say? A lot of people got very rich. Uh, people in the States got very, very rich. Andrew Carnegie, for instance, and the Rockefellers and uh, folks like that. So you're looking at a kind of small version of that. And then a lot of those people, uh, there was railroad money circulating around. And like any aristocracy, they liked to arrange marriages within their own group. And so it is in mine. But my guy is new money to begin with. The grandfather makes it, and then he marries above himself to get status. This was just the old story. And then by the time we get to Iris, then it's old money because it doesn't take very long for new money to become old money in this country. Now, once the depression of the 1930s, here south of the border, we think of it in terms of, what was it, Black Friday in the fall of 1929. Uh, I must confess to uh, my, my uh, un unbounded ignorance of what it was like in Canada was in the same. that same era. It was the Just same. Just as bad. Yeah, in the West, it was the Dust Bowl, just like Kansas and Oklahoma. That drought extended all the way down. There were people riding the rails. There were work camps. There were uh, politicians who tried to keep the lid on it and were quite ruthless. There were battles with unions. There were strikes. All of that stuff went on just the same. There's a fellow in The Blind Assassin calls himself Alex Thomas, not his real name. We never do learn his real name, as I recall. Who wound up uh, fighting on the uh, Republican side in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, this happens to be a, a topic of great interest to me because um, I had a cousin killed in the, in, in the Lincoln yeah, Brigade. Yeah, it was the Lincoln Brigade, yeah. Oh, there were Canadians in that as well. Well, what first happened was, first of all, the Canadian government passed a law that said it was illegal for Canadians to fight in that war. Nonetheless, a lot of people took the train, as my guy does. You took the train to New York. If you had those kinds of connections, you were received there. Originally, they were part of the Lincoln Brigade. You went over to France. There were people who received you there and smuggled you into Spain. And eventually, there were enough Canadians to form their own brigade, which was called the Mackenzie Papineau Brigade after two revolutionaries of the 19th century, one English-speaking, one French. So there was the, the Mac Paps, as they're called, and some of them are still alive, and they are still trying to collect enough money to get a memorial to themselves. And uh, have I contributed to it? Yes, I have, because I think it's an overlooked and really important part of the first half of the century, the history. I think if that had been played differently by the 
Western powers that the Second World War might not have come upon us so suddenly. It might still have come upon us, but people were scared of communism. That's what they were scared of. And they were so scared of communism, they were prepared to countenance Hitler. Now, when, when the Lincolns returned to the U.S., they were treated as uh, premature anti-fascists was the term applied to them. That phrase came along a bit later once people had figured out that fascism was bad. (laughs) So in the U.S., the Lincolns were called premature anti-fascists. What were the MacPaps called? How were they treated when they came back to Canada? They were not treated well. They didn't all come back at once, but those that did come back in a kind of group, the government went to great lengths to make sure that nobody would know when they were arriving. Okay? But people knew anyway, and there was a huge crowd out to greet them. It was very polarized then. You know that, that governments were very uh, anti that kind of thing. But amongst the people, there were uh, many supporters. And there was a famous uh, march on Ottawa that took place on trains, a lot of it. It was stopped in in Winnipeg, and a certain amount of double-crossing went on, which meant that the guys never got to Ottawa. But they had a lot of support along the way. A lot of support from people who were poor, who felt that justice was being fought for, who were uh, anti-autocracy, you know. Now, the sad thing about the Spanish Civil War, as you know, is that there were, there was betrayal and counter-betrayal on every side. Indeed, as, there was. As detailed by Mr. Orwell in homage to Catalonia. It was a very dangerous place to be because you never knew who, supposedly on your own side, was going to knife you in the back. You have a character named Richard Griffin, who is the husband of Iris, who's the protagonist of The Blind Assassin. He comes at it all from the other side. He's an industrialist who kind of likes the Germans. This was not unusual, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I, I hate to break it to you, but people were quite happy to do business with them. Oh, in your research, what did you uncover about that side, um, the fascist side of Canada and Canadian politics at that it, time? It, it was there. A couple of examples. Some Armenians were allowed into the country at the time of the First World War because of the Armenian genocide and so forth. And then the Canadian government cut that off and classified them as Asians and said they couldn't come in. There was similar sorts of discriminations against Jews. Um, There was not the kind of thing against blacks officially that there was in the States, but your job was likely to be the porter on the railroad. It was never likely to be the owner of the railroad. So those kinds of distinctions were certainly there. And a lot of people thought originally, and if if you read Mr. Lucas's very interesting book, Five Days in London, May 1940, which is about Hitler and Churchill and Churchill's war cabinet, you realize just how much, how many people thought that Hitler was the coming thing, that he really knew how to run a show and maybe everybody should run their show that way. And Oh, he was forward-looking and the wave of the future and the the digital technology and <laughs> all of these, you know, hotshot things. And 
Churchill was regarded as a kind of reactionary fuddy-duddy. So there were people who thought in the mid-30s that Hitler and Mussolini were actually quite a good thing. At least they had, they had got people working again. Um, it, was not, it had not been figured out that they were doing it with very tricky economics. You know, it was all built on nothing. But uh, they had a lot of, you know, rather, rather nice feeling about them. The Blind Assassin, as any good novel, picks up speed as it goes along, so it sort of glosses toward the end over such things as Griffin, uh, our protagonist's creepy husband, as... He was a respected pillar of society. <laughs> that too. <laughs> How he turns it around and a moment later... All of his pro-Hitler waxing and, and his extolling the virtues of, of Chamberlain, all of that disappears and he's suddenly a hero. You know, it was amazing how that happened. And again, read the papers. One minute, Joe Stalin is just the worst thing, and the next minute, he's our pal. And then he remains our pal until after the war, and then he's the worst thing again. <laughs> you know this. You've, you've seen it happen so many times, and particularly during a war. Um, you need all the friends you can get, and so you just kind of forget about all those people that he's polished off in the forests of Poland and all of the other people that he's that he's purged earlier in the decade. You kind of brush that under the rug. And uh, may I draw your attention to the to the negotiations going on even as we speak about how friendly people should get with China? You know, is Tiananmen Square going to loom very large? It will be very interesting to see. I think somehow not. This business about Hitler isn't such a bad fellow. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the name William Randolph Hearst. Yes, I am. Uh, there's a new biography of him just in print, which goes uh, deeply into his relationship with Hitler. Uh, and it was cozier than we would like to believe. But the author maintains that Hitler had Hearst fooled up to a certain point. He had a lot of people fooled. He was, yeah. he was very good at this. Um, he was quite an actor, and all accounts of the times that you read of him say that in person, until his later years, he had this charm, and he could turn it on, and he could be very friendly, and people were really sucked in by it. Apparently, he was fairly chummy at one point with the Duke of Windsor. He was very chummy with the Duke of Windsor, and, no, and that was not the only British aristocrat with whom he was chummy. You know, there were, there were a number of them who, who thought he was, as I say, he was the wave of the future. It sounds as we're talking as if this is some kind of history book, and it's, 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 not, it's certainly no, not. This is, it's this certainly is background. Not. It's the lives of the characters we're talking about here, but any individual interacts with his or her time, and his or her time acts upon him or her. In other words, what's possible to you at any given time is determined by the circumstances that you find yourself embedded in, if you like. You, you get dealt the hand, you play it, but you're not in control of the hand you're dealt. The Blind Assassin, beyond all of this, has a, a very interesting construction in that we're talking about a memoir by Iris, looking back on her family. We're talking about uh, within that, a novel uh, about an affair between an unnamed man and an unnamed woman, 
And within that, we're talking about these little parables, these stories, these science fiction stories written by the character in well, the novel. Well, he's actually telling them. Or he's telling them, but yeah. one of them he, he publishes yeah, uh, he also and then denies. Yeah, he writes them for magazines, yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, how did the construction of the book occur to Margaret Atwood? Was it pie in the sky, oh, this is it, or or what was going on there? Well, no, it's very hard to rethink your your own processes, but let me say that a man enthralling a woman with stories is not that new. See, Othello. How come you fell in love with him? Well, he told me these great stories. <laughs> it helps to have a good line of talk. So part of it is the story that he is spinning just to keep her interested in him. And she interacts with that story because she is interested. It's not all lovey-dovey. I mean, this is a rather fraught relationship. But one of the things that holds it together is the ongoing tale. Some of the events in the story that Alex tells, this is a science fiction story that takes place on an alien planet. Uh, but there are certain truly horrendous events which take place in the story. And when Iris presses him about this, he says, well, I, I didn't invent that. Mm. That comes out of history right here on Earth. Talk about that. Well, everything comes out of history right here on Earth because we don't, in fact, inhabit another planet in another dimension of space. We're here. I, I hate to <laughs> well, indeed. pin you down like that. But, of, of course, all of these details are either from, well, some of them are in the Bible. See, for instance, Exodus, the fall of Jericho, and right after that there's the fall of another city. It's called Ai, and that's where that little bit came from. And just history. I went to see Titus Andronicus recently, and, and I went with with Alice Monroe and her husband, and they had never seen it before, and neither had we. And they were reading it ahead of time, and Alice said, surely this, oh, surely this is farce. You know, surely it's, you, you, you can only play this for, for, it must be a parody of some kind. And I said, no, I don't think so. Then at the end of the first act, she said, I wasn't laughing. And then she said, really, this is the kind of thing you read about is happening in Kosovo or or um, Rwanda, or, you know, name a place, Sri Lanka. Once people are, are out of control, these horrendous things will happen. As for the history of human sacrifice, it's ancient and multicultural, went on all over the place. There are theories as to why we could go into those, but it's, it's, it's all stuff we've done as human beings. Within the context of this book, there are two voices. Actually, more than two. There's also all of the newspaper reports. Right. There's, there's also that. That's that's in there as well. But that's an easy voice to write. I don't. Well, there are several different newspapers. I had to write them differently. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, there are two primary voices in Blind Assassin. And there are the two primary narratives. Narratives. That'll, that'll, that'll fix it. One is that by Iris, and the other is that of the novel The Blind Assassin, written by her sister Laura. When you were writing it, what pains did you take to delineate the very good writing of the two voices? Um, well, I took quite a lot of pains. Okay, some of it is what words would have been used when. 
Okay. And uh, somebody said recently that you wouldn't have been able to publish, in fact, it was John Updike who said you wouldn't have been able to publish the C word in 1947. But in fact, Cyril Connolly's The Unquiet Grave, 1944, published by Harper's in the United States, has the C word. And Elizabeth Smart's by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept, has all of those words in it. But these were small literary publications. They were not large commercial novels. And The Blind Assassin is also a small literary publication, which caused a local furor because, of course, in Port Ticonderoga, home of the Chase family, this would be an item. And then you can see it going the way of Elizabeth Smart's book into obscurity, particularly since her mother got hold of all the copies that she could and she burnt them. <laughs> <laughs> and then being resurrected when interest in women's writing came round again and being called a neglected masterpiece and coming out from some little press in England called Artemisia Press. I mean, we're not talking Random House. We're not talking Knopf. We're talking small literary publication, and my guess is that the people who would have jumped up and down and yelled if this stuff had been in a big novel by a famous person never got past page two with these books. Is The Blind Assassin by Laura Chase, as it appears, do you think, and of course I'm asking an author this and you can say what you want, is that the full book that we're getting here or the excerpts? It's the full book. As I say, it's small. Grand Central Station is just tiny. It's only about this big. Unquiet Grave is also very thin. So you're looking at a thin book, and in fact, <laughs> Ms. Iris Chase says, as soon as we hear about this book, how thin it is. So it's one of those tiny literary books that had there not been this resurrection move of republishing stuff in the 70s would probably have sunk without a trace. Uh, Margaret Atwood, you used the term women's literature. Yes. What is women's literature? Well, here we go. I think people like Virago, who dug around and found it, meant literature by women that is unjustly neglected, and therefore they're going to republish it in the Virago Classic series. And there are other presses that did similar things with other books. So that's one meaning of it. Another meaning of it is anything written by women, and another meaning of it is bodice rippers and nurse novels. So, in other words, what are called in France nana, nana books. And that means kind of the equivalent of cheap westerns, but for women. So it's a, it's a, it's a loaded term, and you pretty much have to define in what way you are using it. Indeed. And, and when it's used uh, in, in the non-pejorative sense, yes. non-nano literature. Yeah, so Juna Barnes, Carson McCullers, um, Kay Boyle, just to name a few. who may Margaret have Atwood. Well, sure, why not? It could be, but it could also just be, I think what Virago had in mind was these are respectable books as books. They happen to be by women, they happen to have vanished from view. We are going to republish them. That's yes. what they had in mind. But it doesn't mean, for instance, that only women can read them or that the interest is limited. 
if a book like The Blind Assassin had appeared under uh, under the by name, uh, byline, let's say, just M. Atwood, and nobody knew whether M. Atwood was, was Michael or Margaret or... Or, or what? Or whatever, <laughs> right. Or whatever. Uh, is there something about the book itself that makes it, in quotation marks, women's literature? I don't think so. Not particularly. Okay. okay. In fact, the exchanges between the two uh, lovers are quite a lot like similar types of exchanges in, for instance, some of Hemingway's short stories. <laughs> the, the Blind Assassin has another character uh, that I'd like you to comment upon, the character of Winifred Pryor. Uh, she is the sister-in-law of Iris Chase and in a certain sense the villain of the piece, at least as I read it. Well, she's not, she's not uh, well-behaved. No. Uh, no, she's not. In fact, one could argue, though, and one could be wrong, that a blind assassin could very specifically refer to her. She's blind to the world, and boy, is she an assassin. But that may not be something you thought of. Well, you see, everybody is good or bad depending on who's looking at them. And we are getting... Winifred Griffin Pryor filtered through the eyes of Iris. Other people think of her as, as quite a benefactress. You know, she supported a lot of charities. She did philanthropical things. She had added up the costume ball in aid of the downtown children's crash. She did all of these good works. So who's saying good or bad? She was certainly looking after the interests of herself and brother. And she had dynastic ambitions. She she was very behind Richard's political ambitions. He wanted to succeed to the leadership of the country, which he didn't make it. A, a man called John Fraser, who is the master of Massey College, a position used to be held by Robertson Davies, and also writes a media commentary column in the National Post in Canada. He said, these are my relatives, he said in print. And I said... John, which characters are your relatives? He said, all of them. <laughs> I said, even Richard? He said, I could take you down to the club and introduce you to four Richards. And I said, what about Winifred? He said, oh, yeah, I know several of those. <laughs> do these characters sometimes do things that surprise you? Unless they do things that surprise me, they usually don't remain in the novel. How do you feel about Iris? Do you like her? Well, Iris is a difficult old lady. She would not be easy to deal with if you were in the taking care of Iris position that the character Myra is in. Iris is quite rude to her on occasion, contemptuous of her and, and um, rejecting of help. Um, so she is a very, she's an independent, rather cussed old person who. Uh, has spent a lot of her life keeping her mouth shut and therefore has pretty uh, strict ideas about what can be said and not said. And this is probably the first time in her life that she's actually been able to come out with this stuff. So do I like her? I liked her very much as a character. Would I want her to be my auntie? Probably not. What about Rini? I like Rini. I think everybody's going to love Rini. Well, on the other hand, she can be pretty, you know, she comes out with these truisms that can get up your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a, a broader question about 
creating a book like The Blind Assassin. It's quite a lengthy book. It's, it's over 500 pages. That doesn't break a world's record, but it's, it's well up there. But vertical, you see. I counted the words shorter than alias grace. Really? Well, it's because of the conversations that go down the page and because it's in a lot of small sections with white space. So if you subtract the white space and if you made all the conversations not vertical, the actual number of words is smaller than alias grace. Margaret Atwood is known as a novelist. But also, we discover that you, you've written children's fiction, criticism, and poetry. Are these discrete parts of your, of your work, or do they interrelate? Well, the children's fiction is usually because my publishers, in fits of desperation, made me do it. Um, you have to understand Canadian publishing, and you have to understand that the first children's book I did looks very weird because... Not only did I hand letter it all myself and do the illustrations myself, but they could only afford two-color printing. So the colors are red and blue and a very odd brownie purple that they got from mixing them. And that's purely a matter of economics. Canadian publishing at that time was so borderline that those were the sorts of things that we resorted to. But you could have said you were making an artistic statement by that. No one would be the wiser. I know, but it, it would be a bad artistic statement. <laughs> it should, I would prefer the three-color printing, but anyway. So the children's books, I would say, are not what I quote really do. Every single one of them came about as a, a kind of favor to somebody. So what were the other things? The criticism and poetry. Uh, the poetry is central. It's completely central to what I do. The criticism is giving blood for the Red Cross. If nobody gave any blood for the Red Cross, there wouldn't be any blood. So if nobody wrote any criticism, all of these books would be out there unnoticed and unreviewed. Uh, sometimes that might be preferable, but uh, you feel you have to do your bit once in a while just to keep the whole enterprise going, as it were. In other words, people have reviewed your books, so you owe it to contribute to the grand pot of reviewing sometimes. It's, it's community service then. Yeah, 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 it is. Margaret Atwood, when we interviewed you last time for Alias Grace, had you begun Blind Assassin? No, I had not. Uh, now... Having written and published Blind Assassin, have you begun your next one? No, I have not. I'm editing, not exactly a community service work, but <laughs> one of those things that your vainglory leads you into doing, which is I gave uh, six lectures in Cambridge, England, uh, on the existential position of the writer, and now it is time to turn it into a book. This is the moment when you realize you never should have done it in the first place. <laughs> it's the footnote moment. What can I say? So that's what I'm doing right now. And then hopefully you'll be starting another one. Well, I would like to have a bit of a rest myself. Don't you think I deserve a rest? Absolutely. The previous three interviews can be heard as Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org. And the most recent three interviews can be found by going to the Alphabetical Archive section of bookwaves.com. 
This interview was digitized and edited in April 2021. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.